don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. Welcome back to the Crypto Economy Podcast. Um, so I've actually been collecting a number of Twitter threads uh, that I think are pertinent or good for referencing later on, and I want to have a number of them read on the podcast. We we did a uh, one by Giacomo Zucco uh, in the past, and I'll actually be doing another one by Giacomo Zucco today. Uh, this one I thought was pretty good. It was a uh, uh, one about analogies for Bitcoin as digital gold and uh, uh, kind of helps to reinforce the idea of running your full node. I'm using uh, a little bit of a Bitcoin history in order to explain it. So uh, without further ado, I want to go ahead and jump into this thread and we'll discuss a little bit after we do. So this is a tweet storm by Giacomo Zucca. You guys know I have a fetish for analogies, so bear with me about this one. Thesis. If Bitcoin is digital gold, then the pseudo-SPV model for light nodes is digital coinage, with basically the same trade-offs and risks. Argument development following in this tweet storm. Physical gold was a great form of money for ancient civilizations. Great durability and time, good divisibility and density trade-off, fundamental scarcity before asteroid and ocean floor mining, not too much elastic supply due to extraction costs, fair access, recognizability. The last feature, recognizability, was not super easy to leverage in everyday commerce, though. Sure, you can use hydrostatic weighing to check the gold pieces you receive, but that's often not practical. The verification cost for merchants was kind of high with bare gold pieces. For this reason, many civilizations through history eventually gave up some of their gold's, quote, independence in exchange for outsourced verification to reduce verification costs in everyday exchange. A trusted third party, often a smith, a jeweler, a military protector, could provide particular pieces of gold with their, quote, signature, some sign which was easy to recognize but difficult to reproduce. Checking this sign was less expensive than performing hydrostatic weighing, but sadly there ain't no such thing as a free lunch as we know. Trusted third parties involved in coinage have been known to often abuse this position, almost systematically. Whenever they had some kind of extent monopoly, they would debase coins. Always. Now, the situation wasn't as bad as with modern fiat money. They still had to save face about the gold content. Debasement was slow, stealthy, gradual, with some level of plausible deniability. There still was an easy way to detect it by any, quote, hydrostatic full node out there. Competition among coinage providers contributed to keep it often under control. Of course, the more competition you had, the less this kind of attack represented a concern. It's worth noting that the most disastrous episodes of debasement occurred under very wide coinage monopolies, 
often politically or militarily established, i.e. late Roman Empire, etc. But it's not so hard at the end to enforce monopolies when we talk about trusted third parties. They tend to be, by design, very easy to censor, corrupt, hijack, blackmail, etc. So even before the modern tragedy of the rise of the absolutist democratic nation-states, with their baggage of legal tender laws, gold expropriation, ban of monetary alternatives, central banking, and abolition of gold pegging, which made hyperinflation and manipulations trivial to perform, they already represent a pretty huge security hole in the monetary system. Now, introducing Bitcoin. Like physical gold, it's peer-to-peer -peer and independent. It's not some scriptural money based on a trusted third party. You can check every transaction against the rules and verify on your own. Sure, you are, quote, trusting the fact that hash rate is typically not colluding for more than 50% with the payer in order to reorg after many confirmations and double spending you. Assuming that's a reasonable expectation, is it? You can verify the digital gold you receive independently without any trusted third party involved. But like hydrostatic weighing tools, full nodes are often too expensive or impractical for everyday transactions. Many Bitcoin users want to receive money without maintaining their own validating full node. It's perceived as something nerdy and specialistic. Many Bitcoin merchants just want to receive money using their mobile phone or their tablet. The Bitcoin blockchain is too heavy. Blocks are too big and too frequent to satisfy a difficult transferability and verifiability trade-off to run on those devices. Sure, you can easily connect the light device with your full node over Tor, but many merchants nowadays, illiterate in cybersec and used to the, quote, cloud paradigm, don't even know how to deploy or maintain a trusted computer where they could run their own node. So, the Bitcoin civilization started to rely on coinage as well. That happened with a little help by Satoshi himself. He proposed a theoretical trustless verification scheme for light nodes, SPV, based on the presence of inclusion proofs and the absence of fraud proofs. While a system to check inclusion proofs was relatively easy to implement, Merkle roots in the headers, bloom filters, and all that jazz, a system to check the absence of fraud proofs proved to be very tricky. It may even be impossible for all we know today, and nobody ever implemented it. So, what people call SPV today is actually the practice of trusting the hash rate majority not just to prevent double spending, but to properly verify and enforce Bitcoin rules. Merchants are outsourcing verification because, while entirely possible, it is too expensive or impractical. Welcome, not so much, back coinage. Of course, Coinage becomes a major problem only when coinage providers are colluding in cartels. Hashers are not exactly trusted third parties, and that's good. We are operating under the assumption that they are way harder to censor, corrupt, hijack, blackmail, etc., and it may even work. But while we could have a realistic, is it, expectation that overall hashers themselves will not systematically collude, we know for a fact that ASIC production is still, hopefully not for long, a de facto monopoly, able to easily influence majority hash rate at will. 
We aren't even talking about theoretical attacks here. They just tried last year. A business cartel named NYA, who wanted to fool SPV nodes with false counterfeit bitcoins sent against the consensus rules, co-opted the monopolist, for now, of ASIC production, which in turn co-opted and blackmailed most of the major mining pools, pushing them to signal the intention to collude to perform this attack. If they would have followed signaling with actions remains unclear. The main developer working for the cartel, Garzik, publicly stated that the intention was precisely that of forcing the pseudo-SPV nodes to follow the new rules. The specific goal of the NYA attack wasn't debasement, it was further mining node centralization along with replacement of the free Libre open source software development process with corporate developers. But it's not hard to imagine similar attacks aimed to debasement inflation. In fact, such attacks were attempted by some hash rate minority during halvings. They are, anyway, the natural game theory outcome when coinage providers are free to change or manipulate the rules at will. The NYA attack failed. To be more precise, it was called off just a few moments before the obvious, inevitable, and disastrous failure because too many validating full nodes would have rejected it. But in a pseudo-SPV world, it would have certainly been successful. Conclusions Well, we shouldn't make full nodes harder to run. Ever. We should try to make full nodes easier to run. We should understand and explain the reasons to make extra efforts to run full nodes. We know what coinage does in the long run. Use that f***ing hydrostatic scale. End Tweetstorm. And that was one by Giacomo Zucco that I've been sitting on for a little while now. I've got a couple other really good tweet threads that I want to get to. And I thought about doing multiple ones in this episode, but I'm having a really hard time. My neighbor... Uh, is having their house pressure washed today, and so I'm trying to record these in really uh, little snippets between them having that uh, pressure washer running, which is really loud uh, and kind of screws up the audio. And unfortunately, I don't have a better place to record uh, currently. Um, but uh, this was a really good tweet storm, I thought, and uh, it really emphasizes, if you don't know about the New York Agreement and kind of how all that unfolded, uh, it's really important to understand that it really was about keeping the SPV nodes, whether or not you want to call it an attack. I think, I think any objective person would have to consider, have to at least consider that as a decent word for calling it because... It, it literally was an attempt to just grab all of the corporate, all, all the major market players and force a change on the network that was absolutely contentious. And they blatantly stated that they were going to go ahead with it regardless of what users wanted. And had there not been a massive, massive uh uh, set of full nodes that were refusing to update to their software, it would have happened. Um, they had they had fully agreed. I think there was like ninety eight percent somewhere around there. It was it was practically one hundred percent of the hash power was 
uh, voting or signaling to uh, back this. They had all the major, or at least a handful of the largest companies uh, in the space. They had the major ASIC miner and obviously their pool as well. Everybody who was a quote-unquote authority in the hashing and uh, exchange space was on board with this, but like 90% of the users and full nodes were refusing to budge and did not want to set a precedent that, oh, we're just going to get the top companies. I mean, it was like, it was, it was a, literally a room full of people. They just got together and decided that they were going to break the consensus rules of Bitcoin. And it doesn't even matter what the reason it is that they wanted to do that. If they could drag the rest of the network with them, that is a massive attack vector. So all excluding any argument about block size whatsoever, that's an attack vector. That's a really big and terrible attack vector. Not to mention the fact that Garzik, the pretty much the only real developer on the uh, 2X project for the NYA, made had a bug in the transition to the hard fork that would have literally brought the entire network to a halt. So it was it just showed the recklessness and the ignorance of these companies to rush this hard fork change that would have that would have brought Bitcoin to its knees and would have immediately needed to be rolled back to save the network. And I don't think any, whether or not it's an attack of negligence or ignorance or absolutely on purpose to try to prove to somebody that, look, we can change the consensus rules, it would have been one of the biggest disasters for Bitcoin had it gone through. And luckily, because of, what was it, 50,000, 80,000, I can't even remember at the time, um, because it's been going up ever since, and as soon as, it, as we were reaching that point, uh, that, that was supposed to go through, the amount of full nodes was growing steadily in response to this because, I mean, that's when I finally set up my full node again. I hadn't been doing it for years, and I was absolutely against the NYA specifically for that reason, and everybody's trying to divert. It's like, oh, two megabytes aren't going to break it. It's like, well, no, but saying that all you need is Coinbase, Bitmain, and a couple other people with plenty of influence to change the consensus rules and split the network, that is an attack vector. That is something I do not want. And I didn't give a crap about what the block size was going to be. It was clearly a contentious change, so I put up my full node. And I would have had no other recourse. If I was running an SPV node, I would have just jumped right on their network, and that would have been it. Well, I wouldn't have jumped on their network because their network wouldn't have existed because it would have collapsed within two seconds of... The entire thing uh, switching over to their crappy client but luckily that didn't happen thanks to our hydrostatic full nodes and it says something very powerful about the decentralization of the network that if the nodes don't follow even a hundred percent of the hash power just doesn't they just don't have they don't have the power to run the network they don't decide the rules as i've said in uh I don't even remember which one of my articles it was, uh, but I really like this analogy, is that the hash rate, the, the, literally the miners, are like miners of precious metals. They don't get to decide which metal they take out of the ground is worth the most. 
as long as users are running their own nodes and validating the consensus rules that they wish to follow, you can have every miner in the world switch to a different set of consensus rules. Your nodes will ignore and fail to propagate any transaction or block that comes from them and will instead patiently wait for any miner willing to work for Bitcoin. Because the rules of those full nodes offer up a reward for anyone willing to extend the chain. So a miner who chooses to set up or chooses to um, break consensus rules with you know 95% of the nodes, what they are essentially doing is digging and operating a massive mine that has tons of gold in it, and instead they're picking out just basic gravel and claiming that it's worth the same amount as the gold and refusing to mine the gold. All us node operators really have to do is wait because either they will start mining the gold that we demand be used as money and be used as the consensus rules that we wish to follow, or their mine goes out of business trying to sell gravel with the gold price tag. All right, but I think that will close out this one for today. Again, that was uh, Giacomo Zucco. Um, and of course, I will tag him and link to the actual thread. Um, and I collect these on the uh, Threadreader app, the uh, Unroll thing. So I will probably link to, I'm not 100% I'm not sure how long those stay live, if they're like indefinite. But um, if they do, I'll just go ahead and link to that as well. Um, just because it's a little easier to read in that context. Um, but with that, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at The Crypto Economy and, of course, on Medium as well. And stay tuned for some developments we got coming in the next week or two. And, of course, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and share it with all of your friends in the crypto economy so that they can hear all the best articles, tweet storms, and debates in the crypto economy space. That'll do it for today, and I will catch you tomorrow. Take it easy, everybody.